for some people, depression can be a terminal illness. American novelist David Foster Wallace was one of its victims. He died of depression in September 2008. A few years before that, he wrote something beautiful that might help a well person better understand the peculiar kind of hell that depression is. He said that a depressed person doesn't choose this end because they find death suddenly appealing. Someone ends their life, he wrote, in the same way a trapped person will eventually jump from the window of a burning high-rise. The terror of falling from a great height is easier to face than the terror of the fire's flames. Chronic pain, whether it's emotional or physical, can be so maddening, so crushing, that it's easier to jump than to burn. But what if there's a medicine that's proven to relieve the pain of depression and slow down that headlong plummet into suicide? What if it's shown to be safe, affordable, and easy to administer? What if that treatment is illegal and the state won't kick into gear the legislative changes that could easily bring it to a hospital near you? Is there scope in all of this for civil disobedience? Why should a potentially terminally ill person have to choose between illegally accessing this life-saving medicine or a jail term? Welcome to The Psychonauts, a podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic psychiatry as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. If you haven't listened to earlier episodes, you can do so via the website psychonauts.co.za or catch up through iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. I'm science writer Leonie Jaber, coming to you from Cape Town, South Africa, and this is episode 9. Cluster headaches aren't called suicide headaches for nothing. On a pain scale of 1 to 10, one sufferer tells me, they're closer to 100. It's probably one of the most painful things a human being can experience, she says. It can be so shattering that people have been known to kill themselves, sometimes violently, even when they know that the blinding agony will lift in an hour or so. This kind of headache isn't like a migraine, which rolls through like a glacier and scours the inside of your head for a day or two and then moves on out. Cluster headaches are short-lived but staggeringly acute, and they often come in barrages of cycles. Say, an hour of crippling pain a day, or a few times a day, recurring for weeks at a time. They're more like daily summer hailstorms pummeling the inside of your skull, where it feels like they're shattering the bone from the inside, coming day after day, weeks at a time. Then there will be a few weeks or months of reprieve, and then the stormy season returns. Dr. Thania Jamat, that's not her real name, lives in what I imagine must be a constant state of low-grade alert, scanning the horizon of her body for signs that another bout of cluster headaches might be on its way. She knows the early warning signs. A tingling, maybe some nausea, a pinpoint of pain behind one eye that begins to radiate out. I guess it's a bit like noticing the colour of the clouds changing as they bruise ahead of a thunderstorm. If she feels it coming, she knows she's got about five minutes to get herself safe. Then she'll have to hunker down for at least an hour until the fury of the storm has passed and she can have the inside of her head back again. 
if she's driving her kids home from school, if she's sitting in her practice seeing a patient, if she's hiking up in the mountains, wherever she is, whenever it comes, she has to take cover and just wait out every brutal moment. There's no negotiating with the violence of a cluster cycle. There are a few treatments that soften the acuteness of the emergency. Sucking on a tank of pure oxygen helps. Cortisone pushed straight into the blood system through an IV drip. Or a shot of Imitrex, a migraine treatment that costs about 500 rand a dose. Once today's storm has thundered through, Thania knows she'll have to brace herself for another one tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after that, usually for an entire month. And this is why people who suffer from cluster headaches often slip into a foot-dragging, heavy-limbed depression and anxiety, living with the constant threat of its fierce assault, and knowing that when the cycle starts, it's not going to stop until it's worked itself out. There's no medically licensed treatment that can completely cure cluster headaches, just a few palliative methods that keep yourself safe until the squall has passed. But it's the acuteness of the pain, in the hour or so of the actual attack, that's been known to lead people to take their lives out of a desperate need for pain relief. Fania doesn't look like someone who might break the law. Sitting across from her in her medical practice room, in between seeing patients, she's slight, immaculately groomed, and uses our limited time efficiently, talking me through her life. Raised in a Muslim family in Cape Town, more culturally Muslim than religiously observant, her medical degree at the University of Cape Town, and an internship at Baraguanath Hospital in Johannesburg. Her frustration with the limitations of mainstream medicine and how she's evolved into integrative medicine. There isn't a whisper of counterculture in her setup. Her doctor's rooms are in one of the most ordinary white picket fence suburbs in Cape Town. Thania was lucky, if you can call a cluster headache sufferer lucky. When her first cycle barreled into her life at the age of 19, she knew what she was in for and how to manage them. Her father suffers from the condition too and he'd spent years looking for ways to tame it. In his research, her father stumbled on one unexpected ally, psilocybin mushrooms. For those of you who are new to the series, psilocybin is the substance found in certain mushroom species that, if taken in a big enough dose, brings on a powerful psychedelic experience. But psilocybin is also illegal here, ranked along some of the big guns in the world of illicit substances. Drugs like heroin and crystal meth. Psychedelic substances like psilocybin are found in various plants and fungi and have been used for thousands of years by traditional cultures around the world, mostly for cultural or spiritual reasons. They burst into Western life in the 1940s after a Swiss chemist figured out how to synthesize one form of psychedelic from a fungus common on wheat, the ergot fungus. This became known as LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, or acid. Western psychiatrists and doctors quickly made the link between the subjective mind-expanding experience of psychedelics and the potential to help people who were suffering with depression, end-of-life anxiety, and alcohol dependence. Albert Hoffman's 1938 discovery of LSD opened up a three-decade window of research which set the foundation for a method of treating certain mood disorders and addictions that involves just a few supervised therapy sessions 
that can break the back of sometimes even treatment-resistant mood disorders. We don't have time to go into the history or science in this episode, but please do dip back into previous episodes to get a full overview. The bottom line is that this promising early research was shut down suddenly when psychedelic substances were banned by the United Nations under the influence of U.S. President Richard Nixon through the 1971 U.N. Convention on Psychotropic Substances. Nixon's administration convinced the U.N. that these substances were dangerous, addictive, and of no medical value. In actual fact, and this is well documented now, Nixon wanted these substances outlawed because he needed to quash the anti-war movement at a time when he needed more troops to prop up his administration's failing war against communism in Vietnam. The UN banning of psychedelics shut down the clinical research for the next half century. But, and this is the good news, there's been a revival of this research in the United States and Europe over the past decade or so, where medical labs at some prestigious institutions like Johns Hopkins, Imperial College London, New York University and more, have been working with these substances under license from the state to re-look at the medical potential they've been able to apply more rigorous clinical research methods and use more advanced technologies to do so. The results are so promising that these substances' potential as a psychiatric treatment has been compared with the discovery of penicillin as an antibiotic a century ago. Psilocybin and some other psychedelics look like a real and effective treatment for the kind of drug-resistant depression that can be so severe it can cause a person to die of their illness. But back to Fania and her cluster headaches. What do so-called magic mushrooms have to do with saving her from potentially life-threatening psychical attacks of headaches? For some reason, psychedelics like psilocybin mushrooms and LSD seem to dampen the effects of cluster headaches. People using them in the underground community have long reported anecdotally that taking a big dose of psilocybin mushrooms or LSD seems to soften the acuteness of the attack as the headache arrives. Sometimes they shorten the cycle itself, or they seem to lengthen the remission periods between the cycles. Medical researchers still need to look more closely at what the physical mechanisms might be to explain why this happens, and we don't have enough lab work yet to show us more. But there's a peer-reviewed article in the journal Neurology, where researchers explain how they interviewed 53 people who are sufferers of cluster headaches, all of whom had used either psilocybin or LSD to treat their condition. Quoting the researchers now, they found that 22 of the 26 psilocybin users reported that the magic mushroom dosing stopped the attacks. Half of the psilocybin users and nearly all of the LSD users reported that their cluster cycle stopped. Almost 100% of both the psilocybin and the LSD users reported a longer period of remission between cycles. The conclusion? The researchers said that this anecdotal evidence is enough to justify the need to do more research on the potential effects of psilocybin and LSD on cluster headaches. But here's the problem, and this is the whole point of this particular episode. For people with a life-threatening illness, whether it's cluster headaches or potentially fatal depression, they don't have time to wait for more research to be done, for the state to be convinced that this medicine is legitimate, or that the substances aren't dangerous and addictive, as the Nixon administration claimed. For someone like Thania, she needs to be able to use this medicine now. 
and she is. She took her first flood dose of psilocybin five years ago. She took about four grams of dried mushrooms under the supervision of an experienced underground journey guide. She did the dosing session during one of the cluster cycles, and even though the next headache still arrived the following day, the cycle itself was shorter. After that cycle ended, she found the gap between cycles became longer. Now, Fanya manages her condition by having a large dose of psilocybin in a supervised situation once a month, and then she microdoses with powdered dried mushrooms in between. Microdosing means taking very small quantities, usually every third day or so, for a few months at a time. The quantities involved are so small that you don't have any noticeable changes to your senses or mind state. The rocks shouldn't sparkle, as the experts say. This approach isn't a cure for the condition, but it certainly makes it more manageable. Fania doesn't look like a deviant criminal type, but she has deliberately and consciously used an illegal substance for half a decade now in what you might say is a willful act of civil disobedience. And she will continue to do so, regardless of whether the law allows her to or not. She's happy to talk about her own case in confidential circles, and she'll advise and educate her patients about the potential of psilocybin as a medicine, not just for cluster headaches, but for treating a wide range of potentially life-threatening mood-related illnesses too. She can't be seen using the substance herself because it could get her a jail term, and she can't administer the treatment to her patients because she would lose her medical license. But she does what she can to support people who need this medicine. This episode is dedicated to just this, the many people I've encountered in the underground psychedelics community in South Africa, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, nurses, self-trained lay health people, who are doing this work illegally and at great personal risk because they believe in their moral responsibility to bring healing to people with life-threatening illnesses, because the state is failing in its mandate to bring this treatment to South Africa. The idea of mainstreaming psilocybin as a psychedelic-assisted therapy method for treating depression isn't actually that far out there. There are already two psychedelic drugs that are legal for medical use here and being prescribed by doctors for depression and addiction treatment. So you could argue that if the state is willing to consider two kinds of psychedelics for medicalization, why not all the others, including psilocybin, LSD, DMT, which comes from ayahuasca, or mescaline from the San Pedro cactus. The first of these legal drugs is ketamine. Ketamine is a pharmaceutical drug that's licensed for use here in South Africa as, wait for it, a tranquilizer for horses. But its most common use is as an anesthetic for humans. As a molecule, it's not related to the natural psychedelics like DMT from ayahuasca or psilocybin from mushrooms, but it works in a similar way. So it's used regularly in operating theatres already. But in recent years, it's been found to be surprisingly effective for breaking the back of severe depression, even depression that's been unresponsive to other treatments. It also stops acute suicidality in its tracks. For someone who is gravely at risk of death, ketamine looks extremely effective as an emergency treatment. There are a few psychiatrists here in South Africa who prescribe an intravenous ketamine infusion to help treat depression. So you can ask your doctor for this if you need it. 
I'm planning an upcoming episode that will look at ketamine more closely. A second psychedelic that's legal for use and prescribed by doctors at some rehab clinics is ibogaine. Ibogaine is a natural psychedelic made from the iboga plant that is indigenous to Gabon in West Africa. It's a potent psychedelic with no recreational use at all. The underground psychedelic community in the States discovered many years ago that it works really well to break opiate dependency, and it's creating quite a stir in the U.S. now as opiate addiction and overdose-related deaths are skyrocketing there. Ibogaine is illegal in the States and many other countries, but here in South Africa, the state has listed it as a Schedule 6 drug, meaning that doctors can prescribe it. There aren't many rehab clinics that are skilled in the specific way it needs to be administered as a therapy, but it's legal, and you can ask for this treatment without risk of breaking any laws. Have a look at the Voice diary section of the podcast, which talks about Ibogaine in the South African context. When I started this podcast in 2017, I was only really interested in the possibility of mainstreaming psilocybin as a mental health treatment here in South Africa. I was blown away by the findings that were coming from clinical trials abroad, where people with treatment-resistant depression were bouncing back from crippling illness, where cancer patients were overcoming the typical depression and anxiety that comes with a terminal diagnosis, and where people seeking treatment for nicotine dependence were responding far better to this treatment than any of the mainstream medicines used for treating nicotine addiction. The deeper I looked into the story, the more of a no-brainer it seemed. Psilocybin is so effective when it's used in the right way. It's so easy to produce and administer and can be done so much more cheaply than most current psychiatric treatments. And it's possible to offer the treatment safely with trained and experienced supervision. It's not for nothing that psilocybin as a mental health treatment is being compared to the discovery of penicillin as an antibiotic nearly a century ago. Between these findings and the fact that two psychedelic drugs are already legal for use here, and being prescribed by doctors for depression and addiction treatment. It seemed so obvious. Surely the medical community and the state apparatus responsible for regulating medicines would be all over this. This should be particularly significant in a country where the public mental health care gap is about 70%. That means that about two out of three people who need mental health treatment from the state aren't able to get it. So I've been pretty surprised at how lukewarm the medical and state response is to this idea. During the past 18 months, I've been trying to scope the public mental health community to get a sense of whether they're following the international developments in this field. I've asked around in academic and research circles and in the state institutions responsible for handling medical licensing processes to test their willingness to initiate the kind of legislative change that's necessary to mainstream psilocybin-assisted therapy here. I have a trail of over 40 telephone calls, voice messages and email threads going to various public mental health departments in our main universities, at our state research bodies like the Medical Research Council, civil society organisations like the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, medical industry bodies like the associations responsible for psychologists and psychiatrists, and most of all, the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority what used to be called the Medicines Control Council of South Africa. This is the one body that could make psilocybin legal here tomorrow. The response to these legitimate requests for interviews or information has been underwhelming to the point of gobsmacking. Most people will either tell me that their institution won't allow them to speak to the press, 
or they'll say that they don't know enough on the subject, or they'll just run the story cold by not returning any of my calls or emails. The only useful response I got, as background rather than an on-the-record quote, was one psychiatry professor who said that the research needs of the public mental health sector are spread so thin as it is that there simply isn't funding or capacity to take on another research field or issue. The South African Health Products Regulatory Authority has been the most frustrating body of all. After weeks of calls and emails, I finally managed to track down one high-level but completely overwhelmed medical professor who now works in a bureaucratic role within the institution. The man was so burned out that you could almost hear the wobble in his voice. We tried several times to set up an interview slot, but he wasn't available. So it's become pretty clear to me that our medical community, or the state health institutions responsible for managing the regulatory space around medicines, are not going to bring psilocybin to our therapy rooms anytime soon. There are a few avenues that we can follow to free psilocybin up to be decriminalized or outright legalized for medical use. The first is a process that's due to start in 2019, where a legal team will ask the Western Cape High Court to decriminalize psilocybin so that we can grow, keep and use it in the privacy of our homes. This follows on from the cannabis case, where in 2017, the Cape High Court found that cannabis should be decriminalised, a ruling which the Constitutional Court upheld in 2018. The argument for the decriminalisation of cannabis went like this. In 2010, the medical journal The Lancet published the findings of a UK-appointed board that had done an assessment of the harms and risks associated with the 20 most widely used drugs in the UK, legal and illicit alike. The study showed that alcohol and nicotine are much more harmful for society as a whole and for individual users than cannabis is. The argument put to the court then was that if alcohol and tobacco are legal for use, cannabis should be too. This convinced the presiding judges in both the High Court and the Constitutional Court in South Africa, which is why we can now use cannabis in the privacy of our homes. The legal team behind the psilocybin process will use the same Lancet-published study. This study found that psilocybin is even less risky or harmful than tobacco, alcohol or cannabis. The legal argument will then go, if these three substances are legal for use, then psilocybin should be as well. Episode 2 of the podcast, The Dragged In, looks at the story behind this court bid, and one of the voice diaries discusses the implications for psilocybin of the cannabis ruling. The second option for having psilocybin medicalised is for a person or group to apply directly to the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, using the institution's bureaucratic cogs and wheels to request that the Registrar of Medicines changes the scheduling of psilocybin. At the moment, it's scheduled as a 7, meaning that it's an illegal substance based on the belief that it's dangerous, addictive and of no medical value. It's very easy, using current scientific research, to build a case to show that it isn't addictive. Its harms and risks are low and easily mitigated when used by trained experts, and that its medical potential is incontrovertible. The tricky thing is finding a person or group with the time, human capacity and funding to compile this technically detailed and lengthy paperwork. The third option to change the illegal status of psilocybin and other psychedelics is to lobby the state to change its overall drug policy from one that criminalizes all drug use to one that medicalizes it. This is a high-level policy response that we can call the Portuguese model. In 2001, 
Portugal decriminalized the possession and use of all drugs in the interests of harm reduction. Instead of regarding drug users as criminals, it treats them as people needing medical support. The results have been staggering. After a short spike in drug use following the change in law, suddenly something remarkable happened. It's been widely documented, and this quote from an article in the Guardian newspaper summarizes it nicely. After changing its drug policy, the opioid crisis in Portugal soon stabilized, followed by a dramatic drop in problematic drug use, HIV and hepatitis infection rates, overdose deaths, drug-related crime, and incarceration rates. There are a few lobby groups in South Africa who are trying to get our government to adopt a similar approach. One of these is the South African Drug Policy Initiative, SADP. The good news is that psilocybin is the new darling of the Food and Drug Administration in the US. They are so convinced of this as a breakthrough treatment for depression that they are likely to make it legal for medical use there in just five years. The FDA is one of the most influential drug policy mechanisms in the world. What it allows for its citizens, it's most likely to export to other countries too. So it will come to South Africa eventually. But until then, getting the legal cogs to start turning here is going to be a slow, laborious process. Meaning this medicine isn't going to be available at your doctor's rooms anytime soon. This is why many South Africans are going into the underground community to access these supported mushroom therapy processes illegally, under the supervision of people experienced in how the substance works. Some of these are medically trained professionals. Some are what you could call lay health workers. They do this work at great risk of the criminal repercussions. If you find yourself needing psychedelic-assisted therapy, there are two routes that you can follow. Firstly, you can ask your psychiatrist about ketamine as a treatment for depression or suicidality. Secondly, you can speak to a skilled medical person to assist you with a harm reduction consultation so they can screen and inform you before you take yourself off into the underground community to find a treatment group yourself. Here's something else that we can all do in the meantime, though. I'd ask all of you to go to your GP, your psychologist, your psychiatrist, and ask them about psychedelic-assisted therapy. Ask them what they know about it, what they're doing to bring it to South Africa, and what they're doing to skill themselves up so they can offer it themselves. They might laugh at you. Some will be sceptical or even outright angry. But if enough of them start to hear about this, they might begin to do their own research. And maybe that's when opinion here will begin to reflect the global zeitgeist on this issue. Lucie Paget remembers the moment, almost to the minute, when her health slipped inexplicably from her grasp. It was on the 17th of September, 2012, at 20 past two in the afternoon. That's when she discovered that a run-of-the-mill adult milestone could be life-threatening. And it's when her journey into becoming a lawbreaker began. She remembers it because it was mind-blowing, she says. Lucie is a French-Canadian author and journalist and local correspondent for various media in Quebec. The reason many South Africans haven't heard of her is because her online footprint is mostly in the French-speaking media in Canada. This is the first time I've encountered her and the magnitude of her personality comes barreling down the Skype line at me as she tells me how she was hit by the first hot flush of her menopause on that particular day in the spring of 2012, and how, within a week, she all but dissolved. 
There are many kinds of menopause, she tells me, most of which sound uncomfortable and disruptive, but hardly life-threatening. Hers, though, was unusual. One doctor put it this way. On a scale of zero to ten, where zero is menopause with no symptoms, and one is where you have an occasional hot flash, ten is potentially fatal. Meno ten, that's what the doctor called it. Meno ten. She was one of the first cases of someone with such severe menopause who hadn't actually died, she says. How could menopause be fatal, though? I'd never heard of this. For Lucie, the hot flushes were so frequent and so hot that she seemed to be liquefying. They steamrolled through her body every 20 minutes. They were so strong that she'd vomit. There were times where this went on almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You hear these dreadful stories of women going to psychiatric wards. You go crazy, Lucy says, her movements becoming slightly robotic on my computer screen because of the lag on the video call. Her husband would wring out the bed sheets in the morning after her night sweats had soaked them through. Each night was hell. In a state like this, when symptoms are as bad as hers, you can't eat, she tells me. You can't sleep. There was a time where she shed four kilograms in five days and didn't sleep a wink. At one point she had to be hospitalized. If this kind of thing goes on long enough, eventually your organs shut down. For the first two years, her doctors treated her with aggressive hormone replacement therapy in ever higher doses, but she eventually ended up in an oncologist's rooms with severe ovarian cysts. These drugs are going to kill you, the doctor said to her. But what else could she do? Next, she tried a list of prescription drugs for the anxiety, the insomnia, the nausea, the depression. It knocked the edge off these, but it knocked the stuffing out of her. She became a zombie, and it still didn't stop these mind-melting sweats. Then one night, when she and a small group of friends were celebrating her husband's 60th birthday on a farm in the Free State, a close friend of hers secretly bought some muffins that just happened to have a bit of cannabis in them. She was tentative at first. The last time she'd eaten cannabis was as a late teen, and she'd promptly gone to bed for a rather long snooze. But this batch was mild, her friend assured her, and so she ate one. And nothing happened. Or nothing appeared to happen. It was only the next morning that they realised something was up. Her husband noticed that the bed wasn't wet from sweat. She hadn't thrown up during the night. She didn't have any hot flushes. You're normal, he said. You've still got your pyjamas on. The only thing they could think that was different was that she'd eaten the cannabis muffin the night before. They were out on a farm at the time, off the Google grid, and couldn't even do any quick online research to see if there was some correlation between cannabis use and reduced menopausal symptoms. But there were still five muffins left in the tin, and so Lucie ate one a night for the next five nights. She was able to sleep through, symptom-free, after each muffin. But once the muffins were gone... The night sweats came back, just like that, full-blown menopause again. But could it really be the weed? She laughs across the line as she tells me how she got back to Joburg and wrote to her son, who was 22 at the time, to buy her a bag of weed down on some other street corner. Yes, she laughs unapologetically, she implicated her son in criminal activity. This is where her experimentation really began. Lucie spends the next half hour sounding like the first draft of a medical textbook, rattling off what she's learned about cannabis and how it can be used to treat menopausal symptoms, what the different strains are, 
the benefits of the THC stronger strains versus the CBD stronger strains, what works on the hot flushes, what works for the insomnia, what keeps the anxiety at bay, how to mix the oil or make the tincture, or how to figure out the dosing. It's been a four-year crash course in cannabis treatment for severe menopause. In that time, she's figured out what works for her and what doesn't. Eating it isn't a long-term treatment option. There's too much sugar in the muffins and she picks up weight. Smoking it doesn't get enough THC into her system to dampen symptoms as bad as hers. But since she met someone whose son's acute epilepsy is responding to cannabis oil, she now takes this medicine in that form. Four years later, her menopause is either still under control or it's run its course. But either way, she's alive, and she reckons she might not have been if she hadn't broken the law and started using cannabis. Remember, it was only since late 2018 that it's been legal to grow, store and use cannabis in private here in South Africa. Since that first dope muffin, Lucie has become a legal patient in a medical cannabis clinic in Canada, and she writes and speaks and advocates around the medical use of cannabis. And she's written a novel on the politics of it. But it's only now that she's come out of the pot closet here in South Africa. Last month, in January, she launched her latest novel, Sex, Pot and Politics, which is a comic fiction, but essentially captures her outrage at the hypocrisy of a system of legal discrimination of a substance that she believes should be widely and easily available for people to use for their health and well-being. Given what she's learned since that fateful night at her husband's 60th birthday, she was outraged that cannabis was illegal, after a century of propaganda against it, and that thousands of South African growers still can't make a living off of it, or that many hundreds of thousands of people in this country can't buy it as a medicine. It's just wrong, she says, cussing unapologetically down the line. She'd have been much more outspoken on the matter sooner but for her husband. And I haven't mentioned this little factoid until now, mostly because Lucie's voice doesn't need the gravitas of her husband's name to give it legitimacy. She's nobody's plus one. But in this case, who she's married to does matter. Lucie couldn't go public until now, without risking significant reputational damage to a man with a relatively high public profile, in a country that's still pretty conservative around matters relating to drug use. And neither Lucy nor her husband wanted the police knocking at their door, looking for illicit substances. Once the Constitutional Court formalised the decriminalisation of cannabis in late 2018, the risk of arrest went away. As for the cultural sensitivity, well, we'll have to see about that. Lucy is going public now, and it is making a bit of a stir, because she just happens to be married to Jane Idu the activist and founding general secretary of the trade union Kasatu, and was one of Nelson Mandela's cabinet members in 1994. Because of Jay's political and very public profile, Lucy had to keep her medical cannabis use well hidden, even though her own research and use was leading her into more and more advocacy in Canada. But now that the law has changed here, they're both willing to speak openly about it. Lucy's story isn't about psychedelics. And I'm not bringing it into the podcast in order to go into the nitty-gritty of the medical potential of cannabis. I'm including it because it's a reminder that sometimes, if we want to disrupt a system that is mired in political inertia and cultural conservatism, we have to resort to responsible disobedience. 
The Mail and Guardian's health team ran a story in last week's paper about a man who became a drug smuggler because he couldn't afford to buy life-saving cancer drugs for his wife. They were just too expensive here in South Africa. The only way he could get a relatively affordable generic version of the drug was to travel to India, buy them in bulk, and sneak them back through a border point at the airport, hoping customs officials wouldn't pick up on the stash in his luggage. Is this what people might resort to in order to get hold of life-saving medicine? And this is still one of Lucie's biggest frustrations. She can't travel with her medicine. Because while our law now allows her to keep it and use it at home, she can't travel across the border with it. When Lucie and Jay finally went public about her previously illegal cannabis use, Jay wrote a piece in the online newspaper, The Daily Maverick, called Healing Illegally. In it, he gives Lucie's account of her chance encounter with cannabis and how she believes she's alive today because of it. When I read the piece, one quote in particular caught my eye. Because I'd already started writing the script for this episode of the podcast. In the article, Lucie captures the essence of the struggle. It's not right, she says. It's not right that we have to choose between suffering and dying or going to jail. I'd rather heal illegally than die legally. And that goes to the heart of this entire podcast. Because right now, if someone has life-threatening depression and is a good candidate for psilocybin-assisted therapy, they can't ask their doctor to prescribe the drug or supervise them through a treatment session. They have to slip into an underground community where the risk isn't so much in what happens when you take the substance. The real risk is in what happens if you get arrested with it on your person or in your system. This isn't a call for a libertarian application of some flaky alternative medicine. There are decades of legitimate clinical research and credible anecdotal accounts from experienced underground users of psychedelic substances, which confirm the potential medical benefits of psilocybin and other psychedelics. As I said earlier, the main bottleneck in mainstreaming psilocybin-assisted therapy into medical practices here in South Africa is that there's very little being done either by the state or the medical community to bring this medicine here. There are relatively simple changes that need to happen to the law and for the medical community to be trained up in how to administer this treatment. But there seems to be very little political will or medical interest to do so. In the five decades since the clinical research on the mental health treatment potential of these psychedelics was shut down in 1971, how many people have died of depression or associated illnesses? Deaths that might have been avoided if people had had access to this specific form of treatment. How many more will die in the next decade, as it continues to remain not only unavailable, but illegal? If you found yourself in an emergency situation with a diabetic person who needed insulin, and the only way you could get that insulin was to break into a pharmacy and take it without asking for it, or paying for it, or showing a doctor's script, would you feel justified in doing so? Is it any different in the case of someone with life-threatening depression? Is it justifiable to break the law in order to get hold of and administer that medicine, even if the state thinks it's fair to throw you in jail for doing so? Since starting this podcast, I've encountered a staggering amount of inertia in our medical and political systems which is keeping this potentially life-saving treatment from being mainstreamed in this country. It's got me thinking about how far we should be willing to push the Martin Luther King principle. 
If a law is unjust, he said, we are not only right to disobey it, we have a moral obligation to do so. To quote a popular internet meme that was doing the rounds a while ago, apartheid was legal, slavery was legal, the Holocaust was legal, Jim Crow was legal, colonialism was legal. Just because a law is there doesn't mean it's right or just or moral. Our history is replete with examples of how the law has been used to uphold a political and social system that protected the interests of a few at the costs of many. Martin Luther King may be a political icon now, but he was reviled by two-thirds of Americans at the time he was murdered. Rosa Parks wasn't popular when she broke segregation laws by sitting in the whites-only section of that Alabama bus. Women had been barred from universities, from owning property and from voting for generations. But when suffragette Emily Davison died in a public protest at the races in 1913, UK society started to realise that women are subjects in their own right, not objects who are only given validity by virtue of their relationship to a father or brother or spouse. Nelson Mandela didn't burn his passbook in 1952 to be popular. Nor did Philip Hosanna lead a protest to Parliament following the Sharpeville massacre because he wanted to be known as someone who played by the rules. These were all people who were deliberately and willfully disobedient to disrupt an inert and unjust system. If there's any country that understands the potency of civil disobedience, it's South Africa. If there's any country that knows how to leverage it for change, it's us. Maybe now is the time for us to do the medical equivalent of burning our passbooks.